Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Don, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's true, I'm from Newport, Kentucky. That's where I ended up in Newport, Kentucky, anyhow. I am a Kentuckian. Anybody else a Kentuckian? That's one of the proud things I have, because that is something I got in my sobriety. I started in the program in Ohio. Anybody from Ohio? Well, I do owe to Ohio the very beginnings of the rudiments of my AA life. As I mentioned, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic who no longer drinks. And outside of this room, that's really quite important, because there are lots of people who are alcoholics, who know they're alcoholics, who don't know what to do about it, have no answer to the problem, and still exist with it. And within the confines of this room, we are doing something about it. I can recall being frightened of the thought that I was an alcoholic, to even sharing it with one other person, and then sharing it with a doctor in a mental institution, and then further sharing it at the first AA meeting, at the first luncheon with a group of AA people, and then more and more, and I was sitting here listening, and I thought, oh my God, I'm telling 2,067 people now that I'm an alcoholic. How much further can it go on? How much more can happen to me than has happened to me? And if I told you all the things that happened to me, and there are people here who can verify it, you would be amazed, you new people coming into the program, what can happen to you. From an isolated, lonely individual, lost in the world of alcohol, step by step, event from event, a series of circumstances would lead me from one thing to another, until finally one time I would spend a week with the President of the United States. It sounds incredible, but it's true, and there are people in this room that participated in it. How did all that start? I think it's easier for me to talk to new people in AA. Up in Cincinnati, we have an Oak Street Center, and I've been handling beginners classes there through the years where we talk with lots of new people. And that's really where we fortify what we know is when we try and transmit it onto someone else. And so if you don't mind, those of you who've been with the program for a long time, it would not hurt you also to hear a review type of thing that I like to do when I talk with new people that come into AA. I'd like to say to these people, if you're brand new and some are within 30 days, what really happens at an AA meeting? You know, we had, a, we had an old timer in our program. He just passed away this past year. And he had a real gravel voice. Maybe some of you knew him down here in, in, since, uh, in Louisville. Uh, his name was Al C. Al Calipes did now. But Al used to say, the very first night I came to my first meeting, they laid it all out and told me what the whole recovery program was. The very first night. But I had to come to meetings for 30 years to understand what they said that first night. <laughs> and so it is. It's the repetition over and over. For we call our program the Program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Therefore, if it's a program, it means 
whatever program we had before, we have to be deprogrammed from and come into this programming. And repetition is part of the secret of our recovery. To tell you how they do this, and to you newcomers, or maybe there's just strangers here tonight, let me kind of describe to you what it is like to come into an AA meeting. They usually all gather together. You all know they had drinking problems, not by what they say or anything else. And you know you don't smell any liquor at an AA meeting. But you all know they had a drinking problem by how much coffee they drink and how much Coke they drink. They incessantly are still having a drink at all times, except now it's different. They start off their meetings and they start off with a serenity prayer. And that serenity prayer is really very basic in which it says, God grant me the serenity to accept all of you that I cannot change. Give me the courage to change that which I can, which is me, myself. And surely, soon as you can, give me the wisdom, the common sense to know the difference between what I can change and what I can't change. What I can change and what I can't change. Because that's what's been wrong with my life. I've been busy trying to change all of them to suit me. And when I come to AA, they teach me to change me. And I will then suit them. I didn't know that. I didn't know all those things. I didn't know I had a problem with control. I didn't know what alcoholism is. I didn't know it was a lifestyle. I had heard of capitalism, a lifestyle based on capital. Communism, a lifestyle based on the state. I heard of rheumatism, a lifestyle based on, on difficulty and movement of one's joints. But I'd never heard of alcoholism explained that way. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle based on the use of alcohol. It's how alcohol changes all of our lives. Little did I know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that my house, the only nice things I got in my house is all this cut glass that I drank out of. Everything else is from Kmart. <laughs> See, I must have been into a lifestyle where I thought that was grand and glorious. I lived a lot of fantasy. Maybe some of you can identify with this, but I always thought drinking was glamorous. I thought it was glamorous. I really did. I thought it was a wondrous thing. I can recall as a youngster, a youngster going to my uh, cousin's wedding. And there she was in the white veil. I had never seen my cousin look that pretty before. And there was this, this fellow she was marrying in a tuxedo, and he was handsome. And everybody was there, and they toasted with this glass and clinked glasses. It was champagne. It was wondrous, and they all looked at each other, and there were tears in eyes, and everybody was happy. And it spread all over the whole room, the champagne and the drinks and everything. And I watched that in amazement. Isn't that wonderful? And then I saw later in the evening more and more of the drinking, and I saw fights, and I saw all kinds of other things. So everything about it was exciting, from that which was sophisticated and glamorous to that which was brawling, whatever it was. It certainly made for a good evening. <laughs> I looked at that, and the most glamorous people in my life was my Uncle Henry, who used to come over to visit us. He drank too much, and when he did, he was very like a lot of alcoholics. I understand all this now in hindsight, but he didn't know it then. They gave, he gave $5 bills to the kids. Here, go have a good time. 
Oh, your mother, she gets mad with me all the time. Here, here, kid. Why, we thought he was wonderful. We didn't know why mother picked on Uncle Henry visiting. Later on, we found out Uncle Henry stole part of the silverware and sold it to get drinks. When he had money, he gave to we kids. He was very generous, very wonderful. As most alcoholics are very wonderful people. He was a real bright man. He was a real intelligent man. We loved him. Those people were glamorous in my life. And when I was little, I remember going to the movie house. And my father dropped me off in the movie house. In those days, this was before television. Everybody went and sat in movie houses all day. And there was all that fantasy up on the screen. And there I saw John Wayne. He took a shot. Took a shot and went out. Bang, bang. Beat them all up. Wow. It's macho. Strong people. This was what it was all about. Then I saw the sophisticated films, you know. You see, you see the Joan Crawford of the Cary Grant, and he walks in and says, What will you have, my dear? She's a very dry martini. Ooh, who wouldn't want a dry martini? Ooh, that sounds I mean, these are things that little kids look at. I saw those things. I'd see my father read Time magazine, and on the back cover, what did I see? I saw that gentleman standing with gray, temp, gray hair in the temples. And it says, uh, he's dignified, he's distinguished. He drinks car stairs. What is car stairs, Daddy? See, everybody wants this, and it, it's played up glamorously. And I look at it today on television. Look at all the sports crowd. Boosh! Everybody flies into the air. It's a wondrous thing. It really is. It was just always played up to be glamorous to me. I don't know what you people thought, but me, it was very glamorous. It was the thing to do. It's like Mark Twain said, all my life I was looking for where it was at. And when I got there, at it just moved. <laughs> and then one day I looked out my back window, and who was sitting in the backyard next to the riverbank was at in a way, what he was saying, he was there all the time. Well, I thought it was glamorous, and when I grew up, I was a, a kid. I was a shy kid. I had all pimples. I had all the awkwardness that goes with growing up years. I like to think back. I missed so many, many years. I didn't come into the program until I was 47 or 48 years old. And uh, I think about I missed most of my youth there. I missed all that from 20 to 30 where they say everybody struggles to make enough money to make ends meet. Then I missed the, the part between 30 and 40. I missed the midlife crisis. I see it talked about on Phil Donahue's show, but I, I, I missed the thing. I like to recapture part of that. And then I, you know, and then I, I got up. Now I'm here in time for the senility part pretty soon. All I want to do is get to you know, serenity before senility. I'd like to reverse it if I'm on that way. But I missed an awful lot of it. I didn't know. I didn't know that alcoholism, as I said, before some of the symptoms, and most people think, most of these earth people out here think, the symptom is how much you drink. You and I know that has something to do with it, but it's very little. It's the feelings inside that makes us an alcoholic. For instance, I, I, did, I didn't know that, that that chronic loneliness was a symptom of alcoholism. I didn't know that going along and everything's going grand and suddenly a veil falls down and I'm depressed suddenly. I didn't know that was a symptom of alcoholism. I didn't know it was so much to do with feelings. I, like these earth people out here, thought it had to do with 
how much people drink. He didn't know. Well, anyhow, I'm on the story of when I was a youngster and grew up. When I got to high school, I then learned to drink some beer, as many people did. And I believe I did start off in the early stages of drinking where it was quite normal for me. And then I spotted the people then who were glamorous in high school, the football players and the people, other people who drank, and I wanted to be like them too. These people were always around me. I always gravitated toward them. I didn't know that was where I would ultimately lead to. When I was in high school and with all these pimples I found out after I had a few drinks, the pimples kind of disappeared, you know what I mean? I could dance even without the effects of Arthur Murray, I could dance. I could even sing. I became charming. My smile was better. I was better every possible way. Why? Because I was relaxed inside. Alcohol brought me up to a level where I felt normal, where I felt confident. Confident. I, I never was a confident person. It made me feel confident. And so, it was, a, it was a great friend of mine. It became a very early ally of mine. As a matter of fact, I am here to say, can you imagine at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that alcohol was the best friend I ever had? The best friend I ever had. It is just, I'm so upset that it turned on me as it did. It so tragically turned on me like friends sometimes will do. But it did. It turned on me because it did get me through lots of things. It got me into wonderful places. It gave me enough nerve to get some very interesting jobs I've had in my life. I really did. I had some, some wonderful jobs all before this turned into a great problem for me. I really did. And when it did, it started taking them all away from me. I would like to tell you about some of the stages I went through in my drinking that might be helpful to someone else who's new. And where sometimes we have some of our hang-ups, where we get caught. The National Council on Alcoholism, you all know, is a, a board of earth people with a few alcoholics in between who survey us and understand us, supposedly. But they come up with some very good things. And that is, they say that everybody starts drinking, first of all, everybody, listen to this, all these people start drinking, first of all, because they think that drinking is going to produce fun. And they're curious to know what it tastes like. They're curious and they're seeking fun. And when you think about it, that's what little kids or you as a kid or anything else wants to get this and take a sip because they think it's going to produce uh, euphoria, fun, and it satisfies a curiosity. We all seem to have some curiosity about alcohol. And the National Council says there's a great many people that stay that way all their lives. Now, since I've been in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and I meet lots of birth people where I work, I know them. I know lots of sweet ladies and gentlemen who have a glass of sherry and giggle with each other and say, isn't this wonderful? Well, Martha, are you going to have another? Oh, no, I wouldn't dare have another one. I mean, they stay in that wonderful state. You know, well, I have some more cookies. Well, I think I'll have some coffee. I just have already had two of those sherries. It's interesting. They stay in that fun, curiosity state for a long time. And uh, I believe that I went through that stage, too, and maybe many of you did, too. 
Then they say, if we, some of us leave that stage of fun and curiosity, and then we develop something called the social drinker. And the social drinker is broken down into two categories. Let's say type A and type B. Type A is the typical social drinker who drinks only because it is there, quite often will refuse it, is always conscious of the fact that they're driving. And these social drinkers are the kind that, for instance, if you give them a glass and they have a drink and you go to fill it again, they put the hand over it. You know what they look like? They go, oh, no, thank you. I've already had two. Thank you. Or do you have some coffee instead? They're the kind of people, if you question them at a party, you say, uh, will you have a scotch and water? They say, yes, yes, fine. Oh, I'm sorry, we don't have any scotch. We have uh, gin. Would you like gin and tonic? Well, that's all right, gin and tonic. When I went out the kitchen, there's nothing left. And they say, that's all right. Don't worry about it. I just glass of water or a cup of coffee doesn't make any difference. I'm here to talk to you. That is a social A. Social A drinker is that type. It doesn't really bother. The same kind of people if you said, you know, we're glad you came for dinner. I'm sorry, we're out of string beans. What do we say? Who cares? You know, my life doesn't depend on string beans. That's all right with me. I'll go right on with it. That's the way they do about drinking. It's hard for us to identify with that. But they do. They just talk like, so what? Big deal. Then there's social bee drinker. Now, social bee drinker is the one where I had a lot of trouble with. I know a lot of people in AA who also have had trouble in identifying with social B. Social B is the person who drinks a lot and yet is not an alcoholic. The one often that we envy a lot, the one who often we think we are like, but we are not. We are not. Social B is the person who in the morning stops and has a shot before he goes to work. We often look at them now and say, he's an alcoholic. No, he may not be. He has his chop before he goes to work. He does his work. At lunchtime, he has a ham sandwich, and he has two bottles of beer, and he's back on work on time. He works all day. He has a couple drinks, a couple beers with the fellows after work. He may have even as many as seven or eight beers. And then he does strange things like looks at his clock and says, Oh, my God, it's 6.30. I've got to go home. My wife's got the potatoes on. I'll see you fellows tomorrow. And he literally has the power to get up. He is not powerless. He walks out of the place and goes home. While we say, he's henpecked. <laughs> we think he is strange. For you see, we are powerless. We have lost the power to get up and go home. Too, he has, we have not. In order to feel better and more justified in our own behavior, we usually criticize him criticize him for being impact or, or being too regulated or whatever it is. Thank God we're free and, and independent and do what we do and my family understands and all this stuff that we did until we sober up and realize is crazy behavior. But anyhow, social B does go home. Social B gets drunk on Friday nights, sometimes on Saturday nights. So always on birthdays, they always get drunk on legal holidays, which is rather a bore to us, you know, New Year's Eve and so forth. But their life does not change. These people, believe it or not, do not create situations at home 
that will allow them to upset their spouse so much that they have an excuse to go out and get drunk. They don't do that. The alcoholic will do that. From my experience and knowledge of myself and others, and I can only speak of what I know. By that I mean, here is where we separate now from social deed to the alcoholic drink. Remember we talked about fun and curiosity. That was one stage. Another stage was the light social drinker who could have a drink or string beans, whichever was convenient. Social D then would have, on the other hand, uh, drink quite heavily, but still and all, be able to get his keys, drive home, able to keep all of his appointments. He does not create fights and arguments in order to get out. He is still responsible. He still keeps his job. He does not do, do bizarre behavior. All he does is laugh an awful lot and fall asleep or throw up. And he gets drunk. He doesn't have that pizzazz like the next group I'm going to talk about. <laughs> the group that's dearest to my heart. That which graduates, you notice I didn't say goes down to, but graduates to the real thing, which is the alcoholic. The alcoholic quite often drinks for fun and curiosity, loves trying another new drink, another new combination. You know, they're wonderful. He's got a certain amount of that fun curiosity in his, in his pattern. He certainly likes to be social. He certainly does. He attends anything where something's going to be served drinking. He's really quite social. And also, oh, I'd love to come. Sure, when you have it, he comes there. He doesn't talk to anybody necessarily, but he does do that. Then there's social B, and social B, as they say, is the heavy drinker. He looks at us strangely, more so than any of the other. Though we look alike, though we act alike, though we often cross each other's paths, social B knows there's something different about us. He notices that some days we drink an awful lot and it doesn't seem to bother us. Then he also notices someday we only have one or two drinks and then we're, something's wrong. He knows, there's some, he knows that our behavior is erratic. He knows that one day we're sitting there having a couple drinks with him and we talk about how lousy the old lady is and how lousy the job is and how lousy everything is. Real negative. And the next day he's saying, you know, that I'm being promoted. I, I'm going to be vice president. I'm going to be something. He tells wild, outrageous stories. The social being knows us. He knows that we are different than him. It's sort of like somebody said to me, there is no, no cure for the common cold. But once you get pneumonia, you can do something about it. And that's sort of like social B is like the common cold. But once you go all the way and become pneumonia or the alcoholic, then there are shots and things that we can do that can get us well. And so, the alcoholic is the drinker who it doesn't make any difference when he drinks, what he drinks, or how much he drinks. But where he drinks, it's what it does to him when he drinks. That is how he differentiates from those other folks in this category of drinking people. He is a person who drinks to drown feelings, to bring him from beneath up to a par, or to bring him from here down. The alcoholic has the built-in syndrome of reasons for drinking that the fun and curiosity drinker seldom has. Social A has now and then. Social B has some. But he has them all. By that, he knows that you take a drink when it's too hot. 
that you take a drink when it's too cold, that you take a drink when you are elated, and you take a drink, most certainly, when you are deflated. He knows that you drink on Friday night because, thank God, it's Friday. He knows that you drink on Saturday. He knows that Sunday is the day to get the drinks in before you have to start back to work. And he also knows that Monday through Friday are times to take drinks so that you can cope. In other words, from my experience of myself and others, I feel that we drink to cope with feelings that we cannot normally handle, as our, in quote, earth folks can. It's not that we're dumb, because I think we're among the brightest people there are. As a matter of fact, another thing from the National Council on Alcoholism tells us that alcoholics come in all colors, all sexes, all sizes, all ages, all everything, except, ooh, except retarded folks. You can give lots to drink to someone who's retarded. You can make them stagger, laugh. But somehow, it does not create this syndrome, this compulsion of desire that we intellectually get as an alcoholic. So it has something to do with this intellect that we all seem to have. Not that all of us are intelligent, but every one of us are shrewd. <laughs> every one of us are cunning baffling and powerful, as is alcohol from which we sprang. Ask any Al-Anon member, we'll tell you. <laughs> They'll tell you. You talk about your alcohol being cunning, baffling, and powerful, you're the one that's cunning, baffling, and powerful, too. We are. We're very interesting people to be around. Earth people will tell you that. Al-Anon people fall in love with us. <laughs> they put up with incredible things from us. Because there's a certain charisma, a certain charm. There's a certain boyishness among the men. There's a certain uh, liberation, a certain freedom among the women that we all admire. It's an incredible thing. You know, uh, this man, uh, this minister that wrote, Charming is the word for alcoholics, Emerson Fosdick, which he described these people in their recovery, how they become so charming. And really what he's saying is they never grew up. <laughs> they possess a certain buoyancy, a certain immaturity that's charming in grown-up folks. Isn't it amazing how many of us drank so much and end up still looking pretty good for our age? I don't look bad for near 60. I look at some of these fellows out here in their 20s, they should do so well. <laughs> When I was your age, with my blonde hair and no glasses and everything else, 28 waist, I was the Robert Redford of 1937. <laughs> well, anyhow, back to the National Council on Alcoholism. But anyhow, that was a kind of a description I thought was interesting, and I share that with with new people because it helps them to understand that a lot of us drink heavily and think, uh, you know, that guy drinks heavily, he drinks as heavily as, as me. Why is it you say I'm an alcoholic and he's not an alcoholic? And that is because of the behavioral syndrome. 
In other words, the very heavy social drinker, his life, he is not powerless over alcohol. He, on the other hand, can manage his life. His life does not become unmanageable. Some of the jobs I've had, and I think most of us have had jobs that are very conducive to, to this lifestyle, the ism, the ism of alcohol. Uh, I was in high school, as I told you, and, and then I went to college. When I went to college, I got a job working in a, uh, in a radio studio, and I got to pull the records for the, uh, the disc jockeys. And in those days, I pulled all these records, and they put them on. And when you work there for a while, and these disc jockeys, and you're a youngster, you know, they, we all want to become radio announcers. And so they said, well, how would you like to uh, make an announcement this morning, you know? And then you get to come on, and you say, uh, this is WKRC in Cincinnati. <laughs> you do that much, and then later on, they let you say a little bit more. And so forth. And it's just wonderful when you're a youngster, you know, and you're, you're talking out to all these people, you know, I mean, more than 2,067, so to say. And that's wonderful. Well, I, I then thought I loved this. So while I'm going to college, I thought the interesting thing would be to do this as part-time work, which I did. And I did it well. Like most alcoholics, we do things well, we smash it, but we do it well before we smash it. <laughs> I did it well. I pulled the right records. The next thing you know is somebody told me about a tip, a little town called Hamilton, Ohio. Go up to Hamilton, Ohio, and you get a job at a radio station up there. They take all kinds of newcomers. You work on Saturday morning, you introduce all the hillbilly singers. So I went up there, and I got a job with WMOH in Hamilton, Ohio. And I got to play records, and I got to introduce these people with all their banjos and all this type of stuff, which was very popular in those days. And I introduced them, and that was real great. Then I got a night show where people would call in and request music. And I just seemed to know the right kind of music to pick to attract the audience. And one night, the engineer who spins the records, these telephone calls would call, and people had these long, drawn-out stories about songs they liked. And I thought, gee, I'm doing great. And he said, well, you're getting all the drunks. He said, yes, people that call this time of night had to tell by the way they talk. Listen to the songs they're requesting. You know, Orchids for a Blue Lady. You know, all the sad, sad, I'll never smile again. All these songs. You know, they didn't call and request, whistle while you work. But see, this engineer was an earth person, and he knew that. And he said, oh, he says, you know, I got a brother-in-law. He's a, he's a drunk. And he said, you know, he, he likes all these self-pity songs, you know, that helps him feel sad because they can drink more. And he said, these people at night, that's why they request all this stuff. They drink a lot and they, and they can like sad songs. I, I know a disc jockey now that I talked to and he told me that they do it to this day. Now they request, you know, please play that song that somebody did me wrong song. And we know that lots of people that write music, not all of them, but lots of people who write music do have drink drug problems and that's why a lot of that music eludes and comes out and is very attractive to us then and still attractive to us, isn't it? It's sort of like we're still used to wonderful sad songs Betty Davis movies and pop operas and deep dramas and so forth. Well, anyhow, I, uh, I got to do that and I got to do these things and that led from one thing to the other until finally I ended up at WLW in Cincinnati, the world's 
lowest wage is what we used to say, WLW. But anyhow, a wonderful Somebody's here from Cincinnati, don't take that back. It's a wonderful station. Wonderful station. You never think they need them again, you know. But anyhow, I worked for WLW, and when I was there, a wonderful idea came up, and I'll bet you down here in Louisville some of you have heard this, because I know WLW comes down here, and that was to play, a man played the organ, and we recited poetry, and I'd recite poetry, and I'd say, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. His swell up, moon river drifting slowly down to the sea. How many remember that program? Well, we did that for years, and that was wonderful. And see, that's the crowd it was. It wasn't the fun. It wasn't the fun curiosity drinker. It wasn't social A. It wasn't social B. It was you. At last, to come face to face with that audience. Well, anyhow, that's what it did, and that was wonderful. And of course, other symptoms of alcoholism are, as I mentioned, feelings of paranoia, feelings of feeling lost, sudden veils going down, of depression, and other other symptoms of alcoholism are the ability or the need to change locations, what we call the geographic cure. We are always saying if this is good here, it's better there. If it's not that good there, you go here. You can always come home, and you can keep the cycle going all the time. That's a way of escaping, saying, I don't intend to ever stand still and deal with anything, so I keep moving on, moving on. And so I have that symptom, too. So if you are an alcoholic, if you've had that symptom of, we're living in this apartment now, but if we moved in the townhouse down at the end, our lives would be better. And you get there, and your life's exactly the same, except now you've got a longer lease, and it's $10 more in the month. So consequently, you've got a new problem, which now requires that you move on the other side of town, in a trailer or something, where suddenly you're deflated in your payments, but now you have to pay for a trailer over eight years. And so it can keep going on and on and on. I had this. I had this geographic cure need in me, this need to. Then I rationalized it out beautifully. Of course, if I'm doing good here, I do better there. I need to do more. So I left from Cincinnati and I went to New York, where I'm going to stun the world with all of this. And I never made it to New York. I never did. I met a lot of losers there. Now I look back at it in hindsight. It's a wonderful city. I still love it. It still is part of my fantasy someday to go back. I guess the way I'll do now is go back and speak at a... New York State Convention for several thousand people say, well, I finally got, got, got your attention, you know what I mean? But I got there, and I did get as far as an audition with the CBS radio network, or television network, it was in those days, just beginning. And I was a sustaining announcement. It went live. Everything was live in those days. And I sat right on the air, uh, one of these sustaining announcements for the Red Cross. And I said, so, so therefore, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been in swimming... Don't jump in the water. It could cause severe crapping. Uh, I mean cramping. <laughs> cramping instead of cramping. Coast to coast. <laughs> so I, I, I obviously did not make it with the CBS television network. But while I was there, I got interested in other things like a lot of youngsters. And certain things have always come very natural to me. I think some of us can paint, and some of us can be carpenters, and some of us can do all kinds of things. But I've always been kind of theatrical, and if you have not suspected it by now, 
you must be social B or something. <laughs> but anyhow, really quite theatrical. And uh, so I got into a dance troupe. And I got to dance in some of the off-Broadway shows, and you met all kinds of interesting people, and you learned to kick high, and it was great. It really was a great experience. And while I was there, we'd meet the Child's Restaurant over on 43rd Street, which is now torn down as the Pan Am building. But anyhow, we used to meet there, and we'd have drinks after the show. It's interesting now that I look back at hindsight. The, the people who were in, believe it or not, Rock Hudson, who became a big movie star later, was part of that same troupe. But he did not go to Child's Restaurant and drink. He went home studying lines. He went home to read new scripts. He went home trying to figure out, if I'm in this show, how do I get to that show? He had something built in him that said, I'm going to make it there. And you, crowd, you're just talking about it. I'm going to do it. A girl by the name of Celeste Holm was there then, who later became a big to-do. Always there it was. But this rest of us, we went over there and talked about them. How they'd never make it. We were the political ones. We were the ones that knew it all. We're rich. Well, so much for that. I did that while I was there. Somebody gave me the opportunity. Several of them talked about it. Somebody came back one night, and Charles Russell did the most wonderful job. They'd hire all these show folks. They hire young people, and all you do is you go down, and you're hired on a cruise ship. And you get your tuxedo, you get $75 a month, and every evening you get up and you dance with the, with the ladies, you call the bingo, you handle the sports around the pool. A lot of you have been on cruises, you know that. You know what they're like on a cruise, a lot of you have seen this, this thing called Love Boat. It's quite similar to that. But, anyhow, I got a job on that. I got the tuxedo, and there I was, and I became instantly sophisticated. And I danced every evening with the, uh, with the people, and you know, you dance with a lot of ladies who their husbands left them a hardware store in Dubuque, Iowa, and suddenly they're on their, on their way to see, uh, you know, the Great Pyramids in Cairo, Cairo. And so uh, I'm, uh, that's, that's what we're dealing with, you know, and we're very young show folks, and that's, that's wonderful stuff. And so I'm on this, uh, on this thing, and what we do each port when we come in, uh, we load the people on buses, and they go up, and we say in Greece, you go up to the Acropolis and see where, where democracy was born. They all get on the bus, and they do go and see where democracy is born. But people like me, we sit down at the sidewalk cafe down below and count them when they get on the bus and get off the bus and drink. Being sophisticated, brandy, putting our coat over our shoulders, learning to use a cigarette holder, putting a beret on. Suddenly from, imagine, North College Hill, Ohio, looking like this in, in Alexandria, Egypt. That's what it was like. It was sort of a little bit more of glamour. It was sort of like traveling on the boat, on the ship, and saying, I'm like you. I'm a passenger. It really wore We did these different things. We'd go out by the pool, and, they, and the cruise director would say, now, today at 3 o'clock, go out there all dressed up, suit, tie, everything. When you go out to the pool, you act like you're doing something. You call the so-and-so, and you fall in the pool. So, oh, into the pool, and all the passengers go, they scream, and oh, and they get their cameras, and they say, oh, I wait till I take this picture, and send it back to my sister. She won't believe it. Everybody gets you. Everything was staged. We got all the pictures. We get together and talk about the next gimmick we could pull. They make things exciting and interesting for, for all the people. And then, of course, one of the big things was between five and seven, where the word happy hours started, you know, on cruise ship. The word happy hours today, bars use it everywhere. Happy hours meant drinks around the house. Everybody came from five to seven, and we were told to go in and help push drinks. You know, like B-boys, I suppose, in a way. B-boys, B-girls. But they go in, they say, now don't forget today the bar is selling the Bombay Cooler. 
The Bombay cooler was rum and iced tea with a little uh, parasol in it or something. So we didn't sell it. And then we'd say, oh, what you having a Bombay cooler? Well, I'm happy. And we all had Well, I had the real ones. Other fellows would take just the iced tea. But no, I wanted the real thing. I wanted always to be authentic. <laughs> My integrity was at stake. And so I did. In other words, what I try to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I started to get used to it. I got beyond the stage of where drinking was then just a social thing, or it was a fun and curiosity thing, but now it was the staple of any day. By the time I got to five o'clock, it was the one part of the event that I looked forward to. I did not know, I can tell you now in hindsight, I did not know that I had crossed what they call the invisible line. The invisible line into addiction to a change in my whole chemistry that I could never return to again. I did not know it. It's sort of like people go to doctors and they're broken out with rashes and a doctor says, well, it's strawberries. What do you mean? I've eaten strawberries all my life. But you can no longer eat strawberries. You've crossed over that line. You have now reached a physical allergy. And we say our alcoholism is a physical, mental allergy to alcohol. A deflated spiritual condition. And so I then started to drink and I began to justify my drinking. And I would drink more, become more social, and then something new came into my psyche that had never been there before. And that is a sense of aggression and hostility, a need to put others down so that I could raise myself. That's abhorrent behavior for people. Social B doesn't do that. Light social drinkers don't do it. Fun and curiosity drinkers don't do it. But alcoholic drinkers do it. And if you're an Al-Anon member, you know when they are doing this. When they are purposely putting you down to make you feel inferior or that it's your fault. I start treating the customers that way on the boat. You just don't do things like that when people are spending the kind of money they are. I got a whole new idea to get attention. Get up at a microphone and tell dirty jokes. Dirty comedian. My God, I don't know a dirty joke today. People have known me that I don't know them. I never catch them when they tell them to me now. It was sort of like I was going through a phase. But it was a way of getting attention. And so I did. I became the dirty comedian. I, I could call an X-rated bingo. I still to this day don't know what it is, but they told me. Your bingos were X-rated. Can you imagine such a thing as that? A good Catholic boy like me, too. Well, anyhow, I, uh, that's what I did. I did this enough until I ran across a funny little man with baggy pants and we all, everybody's on stage, needs somebody to put down. And I did. And I made fun of him all, most of that cruise. He had a strong Norwegian accent, blah, blah, and I made fun of him. When we got to the other side, the bosses in New York came on. We had come over from Norway and said, I'm sorry, you have to leave. You just, they can't use you here anymore. You just insulted some very important people. Who? talked about this little man. He said, oh my lord, he's one of the most important people that travels on this uh, line. First place, he is the uncle of the uh, crown prince of Sweden. He is uh, also uh, the King Oscar Sardines. He owns those and he owns five different shipping lines himself. And he was highly indignant and said he wanted that American off of his brother's shipping line. His brother owned the shipping line. So I was out when I was out like any alcoholic, and this is another thing, another symptom of my alcoholism, that when they didn't want me the sense of rejection, 
caused within me deep aggression. I resented them for not wanting me. I resented them for calling to my attention what was my own bad behavior. They would never make it without me. They put me off. They built five new ships since I left them. Isn't that terrible? But they did. So you see, I wasn't. But when I was put off, I was in a little furnished room. I got a furnished room in New York. And way in the back, and you look out over nothing. And I got involved in these soap operas. And I'd listen to them, and I'd drink. And I'd sleep late. And I'd get up, and I, my whole life was becoming... I was so upset and so resentful and so hurt and felt so rejected. And it was all their fault. So you'd drink too if you felt that way. After all, drinking had solved many of my problems. It had given me good times. It was here also for bad times. And so I lived that way for a while. I was sad and I was lonely and I kept isolating more. And then I would try and pull myself out of it and I would go to a supermarket. And I'd go to a supermarket and there'd be some nice lady there... Uh, uh, looking at the meat counter, and I'd come up to her and I'd pick out a piece of roast beef or something. I'd say, how do you cook this, ma'am? Women love you to ask them questions like that in supermarkets. And she'd look at me and say, well, you know, you live by yourself or something. Well, you, you take this and you, uh, you brown it first and you cut the carrots around and little, uh, here, I'll help you. You put the tomato all it. She went on telling me this whole thing. But see, it was a form of, of hearing somebody talk to me. I had no friends. I was isolated. I did this bit, and then I left. I didn't buy it, but she looked like, well, isn't he the fool? I never bought any of those things. I just wanted to have a conversation. That's pathetic. I didn't know. See, this doesn't happen to social being. It doesn't happen to fun and curiosity drinkers. It happens to alcoholic drinkers. Their lifestyle is changing. They're becoming isolated. They're becoming inward. And I was doing all of these things. And so, that's the way I was. But fortunately, while I was there, and this is where I believe God came into my life. And when I mention God, and when you talk to new people about it, it's almost a frightening thing. But if you think about God and what it stands for, it's really quite simple. G-O-D, good orderly direction. When good orderly direction started to come into my life, and it's kind of hard to keep saying, more good orderly direction is coming in my life. Now I'm getting this in a good orderly way. Now I just abbreviate it and go G, period, O, period, D, period, and leave out the periods and just call it God. I don't know what else to call it. But things like that started to happen to me. And so I learned a new stage in my drinking career, which fun and curiosity drinkers do not do, social A does not do, and social B does not do, but alcoholics do. I learned something called control drinking. See, social drinkers don't need control drinking. Fun and curiosity don't need control drinking. They have the automatic control and stop. But once you have practiced control drinking, then obviously you're admitting there's some kind of a problem. It's sort of like suddenly if you stop tomorrow say, I'm controlling my intake of string beans. Somebody say, you must have a string bean problem. I never heard of anybody doing that before. Never heard of anybody saying, you know, he's, Don's controlling his string bean intake. You know, we only control those things that are really addictive. You know, we control certain foods, lemon meringue pie, we control cigarettes, we control our coffee intake, we control alcohol, we control our sleeping pills. We do not control broccoli and string beans and cauliflower and lettuce. 
Who ever heard of controlling it? We don't control our water intake. If you think about it, we control those things. I like to say that I'm powerless over alcohol, drugs, caffeine, nicotine, and ice cream. All of those things have an illusion of wonderment to me. They always have. Well, anyhow, what happened to me, good orderly direction starts to come in, is I am uh, in New York, and a friend of mine that I knew for years, for years, I had worked with her back at old WLW, was into a program of saving a steamboat. And I can say it here in Louisville, Kentucky. It is today called the Grand Bell of Louisville. We are in the bell room. We are in the very room that is named for the boat that was saved by this lady. She was a Kentuckian. It was called the Old Avalon, and it was about ready to be scrapped and deserted. And she started saving, oh, saving the Bell of Louisville, saving this old steamboat for the posterity of Louisville, Kentucky. Those of you who are in Louisville know that it's supported by your taxes, and it is part of the city of Louisville, called the Bell of Louisville. But this lady got from your town, talked to you into saving a boat for the posterity, for very few steamboats are left in this world. When she had done that, was very successful. She had contacted me and said, now there is another old boat. It's called the Delta Queen. And they were about ready to scrap that one. But there's going to be a bigger campaign because this one is larger and it carries passengers all the way to New Orleans and it is a something truly a replica of a long bygone period. And would I help? Yes, I would help. I had nothing else to do. What a wonderful experience. And so I came back to Cincinnati and I began to help. And we worked in programs and we did all kinds of things. And controlled drinking, I practiced, and I was always having to watch it very carefully. This is what social drinkers don't do. Watching this control of this drinking and a campaign started. And on and on it went. And there was a series of us. And it's an amazing thing how many, and we are in anonymity here, how many of us on that campaign of saving this Belle of Louisville, saving the Delta Queen, and building the new Mississippi Queen, were all a series of people who were recovering alcoholics, different stages of Alcoholics Anonymous, non-drinking people, and Al-Anon people. A joint venture in business that was incredible with a few earth people who knew all about us and loved the talent that we had. We had one alcoholic who wrote beautifully, wrote some of the most beautiful things about steamboats that have ever been known. He's dead now. Died sober. He married the one who was doing the betting, who was saving all the boats. They married each other. She was the Al-Anon member. A whole series of us working in the background. And these people, I was with them. I was practicing control drinking. I was not yet an AA member, but they would say things like, easy does it. Let go, let God. Believe it or not, these people were saving steamboats through a good orderly direction going in one way. Well, I became part of this campaign and I love these people dearly and I love them. But I practiced this controlled drinking and I tried not drinking in front of them and I was sensitive about it like alcoholics are very sensitive about their drinking. Social drinkers are not, fun curiosity drinkers are not, but alcoholics are very sensitive if you call their drinking to their attention. You all know that here. Well, we won that campaign, and the mayor of Cincinnati gave champagne for everybody in Fountain Square. Everybody could come down. 
And we were all to stand on a platform, red, white, and blue, and wave. And all these wonderful sober people from AA were waving and saying, God did it for us all. God did it. Just think, if it hadn't been for our wonderful program, we wouldn't all be standing here tonight. And there they are, declining the champagne being toasted all about them. I'm standing there feeling awkward, not doing it, but I was highly elated too that I was part of all this. And that night I drank. And I drank and I felt like I had betrayed them, though I was not a member of their AA. I had betrayed, but I drank, but something new happened to me, and it would be the final stage of my alcoholism, was that I went from, first of all, fun curiosity, Social A, Social B, alcoholic drinking, controlled drinking, and now I became a compulsive drinker. And that's the end of the line. It is where I then drank that night, and I drank through, and I looked outside, and I saw that, and I saw the time, and I said, is it five after nine in the morning or five after nine at night? When I start waking up with rug marks on my face, you see, black and white, screens, wondering what I was doing on the floor. What, what day was it? I left even that job and I stayed at home. And then I became ashamed. I became remorseful. Social drinkers don't do these things. Fun curiosity drinkers don't do these things. Alcoholic drinkers do these things. I didn't know though. Nobody told me. I had no way of knowing. Now I know in hindsight. Now I can come out and tell 2,000 more people. Maybe there's someone brand new here who will say, Hey, that's what I thought I was when I came here tonight. Some heavy social drinker, but I'm going to this thing that they're saying, and maybe I'll understand it better. I hope you do. Because if you have had these bizarre behavior patterns, and if you've forgotten where you park your car, and you do these obvious things that the 20 questions ask us, that's part of it. But these feelings are part of it too. I was this compulsive drinker. And this lady, this Al-Anon member, came over to my house, knocked on the door and came in, and I felt terrible, and I didn't shave and everything else. I began to justify that I was ill, that I had a very bad cold and could not come in. In which she sat down and told me the whole story, all these wondrous people. And she said, you know, my husband, my husband is an alcoholic. My husband's out of town right now, but I'm here. She was doing a 12-step call, an Al-Anon member, and she talked to me. In those days, we didn't have care units, but she took me, called up a friend of hers, a doctor, a psychiatrist, and she took me to this mental hospital, and I went there. I was in this mental hospital, and I dried out, so to say, and while I was there trying to understand what's wrong with me, and the psychiatrist wanted to know what my toilet training was, and everything through my whole life of why I would drink. While I was there, a man came one evening, all dressed up with a suit and tie and a book under his arm, looked typically like a preacher, came up and said to me, may I talk to you? And I said, of course you can. And I said, do you work here? And he said, yes, I do. I said, well, what do you do? He says, I'm the plumber. The plumber? He's all dressed up like this in this book. He said, I'm the plumber. Of course, I'm the plumber in the daytime. Uh, I maintain all the boilers for eating the hospital. It was a cold January day. But he said, I come here in the evenings quite often because, you see, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, part of our program of recovery is that if I go to someone who's having troubles with alcohol and I tell them my life story, it helps me to get well. 
Well, now, if you're new in the program, this is how crazy some of us look. You know, coming in with a big book that says, can I tell you my story so I can get well? So I naturally said the typical remark. Well, if it gets you well, sit down and tell me your story. <laughs> you know, he's the one that's going to get up and leave. I'm the one behind the bars. But I'm saying, if, you know, I begin 12-stepping him. Is that incredible? 12-stepping him. I'm saying, well, if it gets you well, tell me your story. And he began to tell me the story, and he told me a story that sounded very similar, but not exactly the same. And if you're new here, you will never, you know, everybody has different patterns. Some people drank more, some people drank less, some of us drank all different kind of things. But that was, I did. I listened to him. Well, anyhow, he, uh, he talked to me and asked me if I want to go to an AA meeting with him. Well, that sounded pretty good, because you get a pass, and he takes you out in the car, and at least you go somewhere else, because all these people here are goofy. <laughs> you know, I mean, that feeling that you're watching them up and down, you're going up and down, pill time, everybody comes down at 4 o'clock with those little slippers, and you get your pills, and so forth. You know what I mean. A lot of you seem to know what I mean. I, quite obviously, this is not a rotary meeting. <laughs> well, anyhow... I'm living in this thing, and while I'm there, by the way, I also empower us over something else which may strike you as strange, but maybe somebody in this room will identify with it. I empower us over wheat flour. That is, I have an allergy to flour. Those friends of mine who know me, I can't eat anything that has flour on it. It's a strange... Uh, the actress, uh, Carol Burnett, has the same situation. She's written books on it. It's very interesting. Anyhow, there's a lot of us that cannot handle wheat flour. It, it causes great complications for us. So uh, when I checked into this hospital, a psychiatrist, you know, begins to talk to me. And I said to him, well, now, wait a minute, doctor. You understand, yes, I'm ready for your treatment and so forth. But about the diet, you've got to understand that whatever you feed me, it cannot have flour in it. I cannot eat bread or anything like that. He looked at me and said, we understand, Mr. Deming, but uh, you are not here because you had too much tasty bread. <laughs> the beginnings of what you call deflation. Also, he asked me what I drank, and I said, well, I drank nothing but best things. I was not, uh, I did not drink beer. I didn't like the taste of it. I did not drink cheap whiskeys. The whole way I brought up in, in my drinking career was on ocean liners and all. I drank good brandies. I named several of them for him. <laughs> Imagine that. Proving my validity of how high class I was. Uh, named them and so forth, and the wines. And he said, oh, then you're a wine owner. <laughs> That's an amazing thing to hear, you know, when you have very grand feelings about yourself. Aha! Newcomers strike down another symptom of alcoholism. Grandiosity. Grandiosity. Being more grand than others. Uh, pompous arrogance. Grandiosity. That denial that you have a problem bit. Part of alcoholism. So anyhow, he did that. And I did go to my first meetings. When I went to my first meetings, I liked it instantly. Now, I hear different people come to the program and say, well, it was all right, and so forth, and I fell in and out, and so forth. I did not. From the minute I came in the program, I stayed in, and I have not had a drink for, it'll be almost 10 years now that I've ever had a drink. Why did it work? I don't know. A magic, a magic came over me. Magic crept in and touches certain ones of us? I don't know. One person said to me, well, when I said, you know, so many of these people, they have all these slips, and they're, they're in the program, and maybe i got to have some slips in order to really belong. This person said, did you ever stop and think you had all those slips before? That was your compulsive dream. That was your control. Those were your slips. 
You've had your slips before. You got it. You hit your bottom. You're ready and go. Don't sit here and say, I got to have six more slips. Maybe those other people needed those slips to finally get it. And afterwards, I talked to people in the program who had these slips and I could identify them. They said, yes, finally after this and that and that. Finally, I hit a bottom, and finally, I decided to stay. I turned in my temporary card and asked for a permanent card, please. And they stayed, and I stayed. So I began to realize that I did belong. Well, when I came there, I liked it. I liked everything about it. It reminded me sort of like the ocean liner. The Oak Street Center's got nice chandeliers. I thought it was like on a boat. Those wonderful places we went to in Europe, you know. I liked the shaking hands, which is like the receiving line, you know, at the... The ocean liner was shook hands, everybody shook hands. I can recall my first night, they're standing there shaking hands with everybody, all dressed up with my eyes, my eyes all dressed up, you know, everything fine, and shaking hands, and there I am with this bracelet, you know, Emerson North, Ward 3. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy when you think about it. But there I am. But wonderful people understood me, and they just thought it was great. The first night I was there, I disappeared. You know, I went out on the porch. There were a lot of people out on the porch. The fellow who brought me there on the past was almost ready to have a stroke. Oh, my God, I brought him to the mental hospital. He's gone. Last time I saw him, he was shaking a hand. Well, he's out on the porch. So they got me out on the porch real nice and gentle. You know how AA people can be. Oh, come on inside. Cold out there. It is, you know, come on inside. So, so I come inside. But anyhow, what happened there, downtown in Cincinnati, they have a, a place where they eat every day, the restaurant called the Round Table. And one of them invited me down there to go down and start eating there. Lunch. I worked downtown, and I did. And while I was there, is when magic started to happen in my life. For then, for the first time, it wasn't just a meeting. It wasn't somebody explaining to me what alcoholism is. It wasn't listening to a story and then getting up and walking out after the meeting was over. It was then dealing with these people on a one-to-one -one basis. Where do you live? Well, I live so-and-so. What do you do in your work? Well, I do this in my work. How do you cope with this? Well, I cope this way. How do you feel about this? I feel about that. Do you want to go to a movie? Yes, I want to go to a movie. Do you want to drive? I'll drive. Shall we go to a shopping center? Yes. Where do you buy your clothes? An interreaction that I had never had with my fellow drinking people before. It always had been very superficial, and suddenly here I am interreacting with other human beings, and they're sober. And I'm sober. And they're listening to me, and I'm listening to them. It's like Bill Wilson says in the big book. When does the recovery come? When we feel that we are needed, wanted, loved, and respected. And that's what was happening to me. There's a person in this room tonight that is my sponsor who came down here specially tonight give me some encouragement before I went on. I said, it's going to be fine. Just be yourself. Talk to them like you talk to me. But he nursed me through that period because when I first came in the program, I would not talk. As he said, once he got that flowing, I have never stopped since. <laughs> I am the evangelist of AA. Today. But anyhow, I am very, I'm glad he's here tonight and I'm most grateful to him for all that he's done to make this occasion so very possible. I became very involved in AA. I have held every one of our different involvements in AA, in our chairmanships and Thanksgiving banquets and all different things. I became involved. It's pointed out very clearly at the beginning of Chapter 7 that there is no more of a sureness, more of an immunity against drinking 
than intensive work with other alcoholics. When everything else fails, that works. It tells us that. And it tells us that self-knowledge of ourself, knowledge of why we drank, doesn't make us stop drinking. Ah, newcomers become aware of that. Because some of us were new say, once I figure out why I drank, I'll stop drinking. No, you won't. You'll drink over why you drank. You'll drink over the reasons when you find out. It tells us it's not a matter of that. It's not a matter of self-knowledge that makes us sober. Self-knowledge helps us become happier, helps us to cope, helps us to become contented, helps us to become serene. That's what self-knowledge does. But action, doing for others, helping others, makes us sober. It says it very clearly in the big book. It is into action that gets sobriety. It is later after sobriety the self-knowledge. It's sort of like how many of us have gone to psychiatrists when we were drinking, got nothing out of it. Once we sober up, go to a psychiatrist. It's very helpful in straightening out much of our lives. Well, I became active in those things, ladies and gentlemen, and I worked for the Delta Queen Steamboat Company. And that's all right to say because I'm sure there's not a soul there who doesn't know a thing about me. And they love it. Yes, they love that about me. They they say to me, there's something about you that is different. It glows. They don't know it's really AA. They don't know there's a sense of understanding that, that I can say to some of these people. And some of them are higher ranking individuals than me, but they'll kind of leave me alone. There goes the spiritual one down the hall. <laughs> it's wonderful to be the spiritual one instead of the financial one. They're the ones that keep getting fired all the time. You know? They don't make their quotas. I don't worry about that. But anyhow, this is what happened. Now listen to this, newcomers. You talk about the promises in the big book. They're on page 86. I don't have time to go into them all, but it tells us all the things that are going to happen to them. But there's one more. And this one you won't find in the big book, and it happened to me. And there's a good 15 people in this audience that know about it, and my sponsor was even part of it. He was shocked when I called him up one night. For I work at this company, and the president, who was then President Carter, said... He was going to go on the Delta Queen on a cruise from St. Paul to St. Louis. Asked about this cruise. And so the company bent over backwards. Of course we take the President of the United States and his 33 Secret Service men and his doctor and his tailor and his wife and his child. Everybody gets to go. Plus we will supply those people to help him feel at home. And so our big bosses thought about it. One was a vice president, one was a president. Well, we've got to dig the chairman of the board. No. Jody Powell, who was then the press secretary, said, Oh, by the way, whoever is in contact with the president has to be a person who no longer, who, who no, does not drink or smoke. The president will not be around. Well, I had, it's interesting to me, God works in strange ways. I smoked like a funnel. My sponsor and I used to choke each other over the table. <laughs> and interestingly, we both had quit. You know, we helped each other quit with it, but we quit. We screamed and everything else, but we quit. We had quit. And here it is, because I no longer drank and I no longer smoked, but we're talking about drinking tonight. Because I no longer drank, here was an opportunity that is very rare for anyone. And so the president called me in and said, we talked about this. And knowing the Carters and what we hear about them, they're born-again Baptists and so forth, thinking I'm some kind of a born-again Baptist. I'm not. I'm a born-again alcoholic. 
we've decided that you go. Can you imagine handing this coolie without going out and getting drunk? I mean, this is wonderful. And I said, well, thank you. It's a great honor. What do I do? Well, you have to be cleared by the uh, Secret Service. Well, I, I, boy, am I glad about this. See, God works in strange ways. I had never been, in all my drinking career, I'd never been arrested for things. And I did some crazy things. I tried to patch the Israelis and the Syrians up one time when I was in the Middle East. I asked a, a, a Syrian soldier to shake hand with an Israeli. He said, shake hand. You're crazy with all this stuff. My God, they look, they jumped back at me. One time when we were going into the port of Alexandria, and the Yugoslav Navy came in, and they held all the boats back. And I told the Yugoslavian ambassador, how dare you hold back our American tourists? By the time it was translating him, they had me out of there. <laughs> you just don't do things like this. See, bizarre. But social drinkers and fun and curiosity drinkers don't do those things. They go home. They keep their mouth shut. They don't try and change that which they cannot. Only alcoholics keep trying to change that which they cannot. So, I was offered to go on this trip, and I went on this trip. I went up to St. Paul when I got there. I was telling this to a friend earlier tonight. We were put in a hotel section of the, you stay there, you can't come out anymore. You stay right there, and that's where you stay. And we were there. Well, while we were there, these Secret Service men sit around, and believe it or not, I saw a couple of them reading the 24-hour book. Can you believe that? And so I mentioned... I am a member of the fellowship, too. And the Secret Service man said, that's great. Did you tell the president? No, I haven't met the president yet. Well, do, because he likes, he likes that. He likes people who are in AA. He likes people who are protecting he and his family who are recovered alcoholics, recovering alcoholics. He knows they don't drink. And that's very good for him. And so, before that day was over, I was sent for and I went up, knocked on the door, and there he is. And I was dumbstruck because I think when you see a president, you think in terms of red, white, blue, uh, national anthems, patriotic things. I don't know what you think, but it's just another human being. And I just stared. And he broke the ice. I'll never forget it. People who know these things break ice when they know they create all. That's what happens to them. And he said, my name's Jimmy Carter. What's yours? I'll never forget it. Warm handshake. And, it and he made me feel at ease. Me feel at ease. Well, during that week, we talked about the sites. We talked about steamboats. They were very encouraging. They were nice people. They were lovely people. And this was going. This was all before all this Iran and everything else that happened to this poor soul. All these things were going on. But anyhow, we traveled down the river, and the Secret Service man and it came out, and I can recall the man saying so well about, "Yes, I know. I know about the fellowship, and I love it, and uh, we think a great deal of it, Rosalind and I do. Uh, I often wish that my brother." could understand it more, you know. And he said, you know, there's always some kind of an excuse, isn't it? He said, uh, you know, Billy was always... Uh, when we were in school, I got better grades in high school, and I was older than him. And then uh, I went to West Point, and uh, he didn't finish high school. And then I got into politics, and I became a lawyer, and he didn't. And then he said, when I became governor of Georgia, it really was something. He really went on a wild toot, and I was very worried about him. My sister then became an evangelist. Everything happened when I became governor. Wow, when I became president, this is really difficult now, <laughs> what's happening to me. As his brother was then, you know, peeing on the Libyan plains and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, that, you have a resentment. Today, by the way, he's doing very well. He's doing extremely well. Billy is a very good, full-fledged 
member of our fellowship, I think it's safe to say that, here among friends, and a very good member too. But anyhow, that's the experience that happened to me for a whole week. It's all because I don't drink. Now, you, can, you can't find that in the big book, but it happened to me. And I called my sponsor up, and we had to get a jacket for the president that had the name of the boat on it. And I knew where it was in my house. I called him. He had a key to my house. He went there. He got this jacket out, ran to an airport, Delta Airlines, and they flew it up to where we were. We got it off and presented it to the president. The president used it during that week, gave it back. It's back in my place. He sees it. I see it. Someday it'll be in a museum. And it's all because of AA. An incredible experience. Well, anyhow, ladies and gentlemen, those are the things that did happen to me. It's been a wonderful, exciting experience from the time, the first time I said I'm an alcoholic to 1, to 10, to 20, yes, to even 2,000. And I'm not ashamed. I know that I was never good or bad. And I know that all alcoholics are not good people or they're bad people. They're either sick or well. And I can't help from thinking about my religious training, and that was fine. I never quite understood it when it was all happening to me. Now I understand it more than I've ever before. You know, I brought up as a Catholic, the story of Jesus always seemed rather way out to me. But now I can understand. He walked alone. And they nailed him to a cross. And he died. And it came back as something new and different. A resurrection. And I did it. And I nailed myself to a cross. And I died. And I walked into AA and said, Happy Easter. I'm back. So now I can understand when they say they're reborn, because that happens to us. Reborn. And I know so also in religion, constantly we have this preoccupation. Is there life after death? And I came today and found out, is there life before death? <laughs> so I'm quite a pragmatist. But I can understand and I can be very compatible. I even sponsor a Catholic priest. We do wonders together, understanding. He lives over in Vienna, Ohio now, but that's where I am. I do want to thank the committee for inviting me here tonight. I want to thank my very good friends who have come down from Cincinnati and Newport and people have come from all these various states to the wonderful city of Louisville, Kentucky. And I'd just like to close by saying that Bill Wilson told us that a parable in his last talk, I think it was in Miami, before he died, they asked him to sum up what, what it's all about. He had this very deep emphysema. And he said, I found out that all it was wasn't all that wasn't, was. It's a parable that a lot of us in AA have thought on and on and on. But what was he saying? He was saying that those values that I thought were important before I came to AA really weren't. And the values that I thought weren't really were. The opposites. The professor in the paradox in the big book says we surrender to win. The opposites. Listen to these opposites. Concerning me, I drank for happiness and I became unhappy. I drank for joy and I became miserable. I drank for sociability and I became argumentative. I drank for sophistication and I became obnoxious. I drank for friendship and then I made enemies. I drank to go to sleep 
but I awakened without rest. I drank for strength, and then I felt weak. I drank medicinally, and then I acquired health problems. I drank for relaxation, and I ended up with the shakes. I drank for bravery, then I became afraid. I drank for confidence, then I became doubtful. I drank to make my conversation easier, and I slurred my speech. I drank to feel heavenly and ended up feeling like hell. I drank to forget, and then I was forever haunted. I drank for freedom, and then I became a slave. I drank to erase my problems, and then saw them multiply. I drank just to cope with life, and I damn near died. But I'm here to tell the story. Happy Easter to all of you, too. And if you're new in this program, hang in there. Great things will happen to you. Read the promises. And all of us have got an extra one beyond that. And never think that you'll get it all down, because you won't. There'll always be that missing piece. Finally, when you're laid out, somebody opens up the casket, one of your AA members throws in the missing piece. And finally, you enter the other world whole. But think of the exciting experience it is looking always for that missing piece. Happy hunting. Thank you and good night.